humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 261, and I had a conversation with Dr. Roberta Kung. She is an anesthesiologist. She is the CEO and founder of Gifted Taste. Uh, she is a 76th generation Confucius, and she's a mind-body health practitioner. We had an amazing conversation that went all over the place. So we talked about raising neurodivergent kids. We talked about anesthesiology. We talked about being Chinese in America, the myth of the model minority, racism, women empowerment, men embracing their intuition, the body-mind connection, chi, connections and social constructs. We talked about murder and mayhem. And uh, oh my gosh, it's a long episode. I hope you stick with it because we go in so many different directions and it really finishes strong. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Coming soon, I'll keep you all posted. Uh, Roberta and and myself, Nick Lee and Max Cho are going to be doing a clubhouse. I don't, if you know what Clubhouse is, it's that app where you can listen to conversations happening in real time. And they were so kind as to ask me to join their group. And so I'll keep you posted on when that's going to be. But that should be some really interesting topics that we will cover uh, for people to listen to. So that's coming up, but I don't have a date on that yet. In other news, social media, Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I would love to get your letters, and if you have suggestions of people I might talk to, stories I can follow, uh, that would be great. Go to HeyHumanPodcast.com to find the links page. Every episode has a links section for every guest about what we've talked about and research that I've done to help you find not only our guests, but find stuff we've talked about on the show. Uh, There's also a merch site on there on heyhumanpodcast.com. It's called The Store. (laughs) Isn't that a great name for it? You can get t-shirts and pencil cases and hats and all sorts of things, and that helps support Hey Human. So please do check that out. It's a wonderful company that I work with called Art of Wear, and they do a really phenomenal job. So definitely, if you are interested in wearing some merch, do it. Or carrying merch. There's some really cool tote bags with my artwork on them and things like that. Is it weird that I say it's cool if my artwork's on there? I don't know, but I'm going to say it anyway. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's super helpful and it's a great way to support the show. Uh, SusanRuth.com if you want to check out more about me and what I do, music, art, acting, whatever it is, interviews that people have done with me where I'm the one being interviewed, little table turning stuff. You can also sign up for the mailing list there. And I send out a mailer, I don't know, once a quarter or so, and you can get more info and I put fun links and things like that. So check that out if you're interested. If you like music, Susan Ruth on iTunes or Spotify, but iTunes, maybe you'll download the album. Who knows? And that's about that. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for sharing Hey Human podcast with people you know and getting the word out. I I appreciate it. It's great. It's growing like crazy and and I love doing it and it's important to me and hopefully to you too every week when you tune in. So thank you and be kind, be well, and uh, here we go.
How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Can you hear me okay? Distracting? Yeah. No, I can hear you perfectly. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Is that your backyard? You know, it is. I have this little rental. I don't know if I told you. So my my ex-husband and I nest with our children at the house that they were born. So, and then on the days that I don't have them, I come to this little beautiful kind of, it's small. It's somebody's guest house. It's a friend's guest house. And he does it so beautifully. Like it's a tiny little garden. You never know, but it's just like just the right size. Like the whole space is like maybe one big uh, studio, but it just, it really kind of soothes my soul when I come here because it's quiet and it's right on Melrose, right by the PDC. So it's really convenient. Your ex and you live together with the kids? So yeah, it's kind of a crazy thing. So the children stay instead of, you know, in, in traditional divorces, it, both parents have a home and the kids leave. The kids don't ever leave. We come to them. So the house that they stay in is called the nest and we come in and out. So it's a house that they were born in. They've always known that we were married, you know, in and living together. So, um, you know, we just over the over the years felt that this was the best thing for them because they're still, you know, they're 13, 14 and 16. And when we got divorced, they were it was seven years ago. So um, that's kind that's of that's such a cool way to do it. I love that. And I tell you, if, if you're going to get a divorce, <laughs> that's the way any of your kids, that's the way to do it. And if you can both figure it out. Um, yeah, because I think the ones who suffer the most, um, are the children. They really, how are. did you manage to figure that out with your ex? I mean, I'm always fascinated by that is, uh, I feel like once you love someone, there's a part of you that always loves them, but it just doesn't work out. So how do you, but most people, when they get divorced, the whole place implodes, right? The whole thing you, blows up. You are so right. And thank you for asking that because it has been a, a journey, Susan. And I think part of it is really going deep and understanding and truly living when you want to do something for your children. Because oftentimes we kind of ego gets in the way, right? Even the divorce, whether you're the one leaving or you're the one being left, so much of the ego gets in the way and you forget the person you married, you love deeply, just like you said, and they will always be a part of you. And, and I think when we can really do the work, our individual work and step back and um, step into it, and it sounds so trite, but when you truly step into a place of really unconditional love, taking away everything that you think he may have done to you, you have done for him, forgiving yourself. And that unconditional love truly begins with forgiving yourself and self-acceptance. Like I left my marriage, and but I waited for probably about four or five years of unhappiness, trying to figure it out. And, and I, I, I couldn't. And I finally realized the only thing that was hinging was a marriage. I did everything. I, you know, I worked more. I started a new business. I was, um, you know, mentoring more at my kids' school, um, doing everything but looking at what was the other part of it, which was when we oftentimes come together in a marriage, we come as um, broken souls. But our soul's journey is to heal. And the person you come together with is truly a soulmate. Because you're supposed to grow and help each other grow, but we get lost in the ego in that. So when we truly kind of understand that that's what they are there for you, they will always be a part of your life. Like I know David, um, he's always, we are co-partners in life, right? We have children, we'll have grandchildren. And, um, you know, and I think when we recognize that, like he is some of the best parts of me. I couldn't be where I am today without him, the love he gave me. And, you know, and I think he sees it also in a way of what I've provided him, but we both had to do our own growing to be able to come there, right? Instead of blaming each other. And I think often that becomes the hardest thing because it's easier to look outside. But if we remember 
the people that you're with are really mirrors of who you are. They're your shadow, right? That is that shadow side. And what are they there to teach you? So and whether it's a love relationship or whatever it is, whether it's a partner or, you know, even children, they're there to teach us something. They're gifts, friendships. When they come in and out of our lives, you know, they were there for something. And if we can honor and cherish what that was, um, it's all about our healing. You know, so yeah, and I do think that for a lot of people, they confuse what. Firstly, let me introduce you, Roberta Kung, <laughs> Doctor Roberta Kung. Welcome to Hey Human. It's so good to have you. Before we go off on this really interesting tangent, because yeah. there will be, I'm going to shift my uh, my visual field so that okay. here we go. I'm doing this on my iPad, which is new for me. I got new earbuds. I'm hoping it makes all the sound better, but it, so everything's in a different place than normal. Anyway, uh. So, Dr. Roberta Kung, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for being here. <laughs> I appreciate Thank having you so you. much for having me. <laughs> I think that people confuse the idea of what a soulmate is. You know, we're sold this bill of goods from a young age. Your soulmate is this person that's going to sweep you up and, and change your life and make you this or that. And it's that thing of people coming to the party as 50% and expecting the other 50% to make you 100. It doesn't work like that. And, you know, we hear it time and again, do your best to come to the table 100%. That's right. And meet up with people. But I mean, that's a, that's a lifelong journey getting to 100%. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do think that that does trick, it tricks people. Yeah. And I don't know, truthfully, Susan, if we ever get to 100%, I think that is part of our soul's journey is to, you know, it's just about raising our consciousness. And, you know, when we tap into what love really is, um, I also believe that all relationships are to heal a love loss, some kind of soul loss in love in the past, like many lives ago. Um, and or parental, we, I think parental too, that, that usually you're absolutely. drawn to people that remind you of whichever parent messed you up enough. <laughs> yes. And, and truth be told it, there are many layers because, you know, in reality, both have a, a role in this. Um, the mother, particularly the mother wound is a really big one that people go through a, a journey of healing, right? We, and we've all gone through that and, and continue to. But um, the appreciation for what they are in our lives, I think, as we experience life, becomes deeper and fuller and richer. And with the gratitude that continues to pour forth, um, even after the parent is gone, it doesn't even have to be that the parent is alive. I think a lot of people try to rush the process and it becomes inauthentic. Um, But if you just truly, I think that the one key is to kind of go inward and to have that place of silence and that to live really from your core of inner stillness. I truly believe finding peace. Having that understanding of the mother wound, especially as a mother, do you have uh, sons or daughters? I have both. I have one son okay. and two daughters. So knowing that, did that? Did you know it going in, or was that something you came to as you went along, understanding the idea of the mother yeah. wound? And yeah, I did. I knew the mother wound because a mother wound started from my grandmother to my mother. So I witnessed that, um, and had some of the strength to break free from some of it. But as a first generation Chinese. Um, I'm the 76th generation of Confucius. So there's a very strong, like, you know, a family lineage there. And what is the right, the Chinese thing to do? The first generation, the daughter, the middle daughter on top of that into a mother who, you know, whose husband left her. And so it was, there was, it was very many layers, like many of us, we have many, many layers. 
Um, so actually, when I gave birth to my first, and I prayed for daughters, I wanted daughters, because somehow down deep inside us, we all have that intuition where we know that's going to heal us. But the outside that the dialogue is, I'm so scared, of, but I want it. I'm so scared. I want it. So the universe blessed me with Alana, who was my second daughter. And I cried when she was born. It was tears of joy, but it was also, I was so scared. And then the universe gave me Alexa, who came after her. And the way that that all came about was very interesting because my middle daughter, Alana, was born with neurofibromatosis, which is a chromosomal abnormality. And what she looks like now, you would never know. She has cafe au lait spots on her. But at the time when she was born, there was a whole constellation of um, syndromes that it could be associated with. And it could even be death. So there was a lot there. And I remember when she was born, the uh, geneticist says, you know, 50% of her children will have this gene and they will have neurofibromatosis. And I remember not only was I having to deal, my ex-husband and I were dealing with this. I was thinking, this is a burden I've given to her, Right. And I started praying at that time when she was only four months old that I would have another daughter because they said, the one thing you can do is that if somebody can donate their eggs to her, she can have, you know, her kids can all be fine. So immediately, again, being in the young mentality of, oh, I've got to cure this. I've got to figure out a way. I was like, I will have another daughter. That way, this daughter will give. And sure enough, you know, seven months later, I gave birth to Alexa, who was a preemie. But she was a fighter, which is, I mean, and it makes so much sense because now she's like, yeah, I'll give it to you, Alexa, Alana, all of that. You know, but but going to that point is like our journeys of our children. When Alexa came, I was also so full of tears, so so full of gratitude. But how am I going to raise these girls? Because here, my background was so damaged and it was so complicated. Um, didn't know, but it was going back to somehow finding the, finding the strength of believing that the universe gave it to me for some reason. And also blessing my partner, knowing that I had David and we were going to figure this out. But again, David and I were at different levels of spirituality. And then I think oftentimes people who have more soul growth are deep, are more spiritual because they have to look inward. They've kind of hit rock bottom. They don't know where else to go. And so, and I think that was me. Um, I, I was the, the, the more spiritual one of the two. How does your being Chinese and from a lineage Confucius, which of course great thinkers, how did that figure into you as a kid? Because yeah. you you grew up probably in a time where it was pretty easy to other you, I'm sure. Exactly. And also exactly. in the Chinese culture, like in the actual China, women, that's a whole other thing, right? How yes. women are, are regarded. I'm not sure how that happened because you kind of need women to keep the 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 chain of events going and yet they're not as revered at least that back then yeah. yeah yeah it's it's very interesting um and that such a great question and there's so many layers to that but i'll speak to first with growing up so my father was very traditional um he came here he also had a lot of struggles even though he came from that lineage it by no means did he have a silver spoon so he came to the united states with 50 dollars in his pocket it's a classic story um, my father was very bright and he had a scholarship to attend um, Northwestern University. So, and I think growing up, he and my mother's marriage was one not of love. It was, it was a one-sided love. And, and I think, you know, and not to go too much into it, but in essence, I grew up in a family where, you know, my mother felt this um, unrequited love 
And she did everything she needed to try to prove that she was worthy of his, of his love. And my father, to his credit, didn't know how to express himself. He was a traditional Chinese man. And I think in China in general, we're not very expressive people. We almost feel it in our hearts and it's the way it is. So there was very little communication. And I think so my mother spent her whole life trying to prove that she was worthy. And in fact, my mother was by far the enlightened one and the brilliant one. I look back now and realize that she was. Um, but at the time, society and the world didn't give her that credit. So I think for my father, it was all about taking care of my dad. But my mother was the woman behind the man, like so many women are, where we put our ambitions behind men. And when men aren't enlightened, they don't have the ability to uplift you. So it becomes an energy pull. So where on the outside, she was dressing him up. He was as handsome and my father was very handsome. And I think um, society looked at her as like, oh, she's the ugly duckling. She is this gorgeous guy. Never mind that she built him to who he is, this person. So when he actually left her for a younger woman, and that story was also painful because it wasn't what you would think it would be. My mother, because she felt so unloved and unworthy, she spent her whole life really torturing him because she was like, prove it to me, prove it to me. And he would have been, in a way, I truly believe he would have been fine if she didn't do that. So this goes back to the ego and, you know, where you can change the reality of something by how you behave and, and you know, where you are in your growth. And he couldn't tolerate that anymore. So he went to somebody who was younger, who didn't give him all of the hassles. And, but on the outside, it just looked like, oh, he went for a younger woman. Their marriage ended up not being a good one either, but that was also his journey. But having said that, growing up, I was always then taught, you have to stand up for yourself. You have to have your own career. So both my sister and I were very strong and strong-willed in that. My brother, on the other hand, was the opposite, right? He was a male. And in the you know, Chinese tradition, the men just have to sit back and they, get, they just get put on a pedestal. And his life ended up being very painful up until the time my mom died. And until she was able to let go, literally, and he was able to let go of her energy, he couldn't grow spiritually. Oh, and fascinating. Yeah. So, um, so for me, that was the environment that I grew up in. But having said that, um, I think that I've always been blessed with a higher purpose. And I somehow knew that because I didn't hate men growing up. I actually truly, truly loved men because the men that came into my life were such beautiful people. Like my first boyfriend, we always remember like in high school, right? And I'm still friends with him to this day. He's married and, um, but he treated me so beautifully. And, um, and I think throughout the years, I've always had you know, serially like monogamous relationships that men were so tremendous in my growth. Even my ex-husband to this day is such a wonderful man. So, so you feel very grounded. And I think when you are able to hold space, I mean, I granted, I know you now as a grown woman, but, but to be able to hold your space makes a huge difference. Yeah. And, and I'll be very transparent with you. My journey has been very tough because I've dealt with how I've dealt with my pain was I've had an eating disorder, you know, for, for the majority since I was the age of 13, bulimia and um, restricting um, all of that. Right. Yeah. And, and I think part of that was very why women also have more eating disorders. We turn our pain inward. Men go outward, right. With anger, with, um, you know, gel and that kind of behavior, but women turn it inward. So this is also why today I'm so passionate about what I do 
Susan, and trying to have women guide women to healing themselves because we are seeing, we continue to see a greater number of autoimmune disorders, digestive disorders, so many dis- diseases that are predominantly in women. And why? Oh, is yeah. That, right? Yeah. 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 It is fascinating. Okay. I want to touch on that a little bit, but before you said something that I found really intriguing something about uh, the, the Chinese uh, are not great at expressing themselves. And the minute you said that, I thought about when I was in college. I took a Chinese literature class. It was in Mandarin, and I just followed along as best I could with the translation. But the stories were so beautiful, and the art uh, is so beautiful. That you know, the the old school Chinese uh, reliefs and and paintings, and the the poetry and the books. I always find that so interesting. It's like we we have so much trouble saying something out loud, but then we turn to art and we create these masterpieces. Yes. You know. Yes. Anyway, it made me think of that. Yes. yes, absolutely. And I think now we're seeing more than ever a lot of the wisdom and the beauty that we see in that artwork, even the philosophy, we're going back and experiencing that because we are in a place in our world where we realize the Western way of approaching things is not working. So we have to go look at ancient wisdom. So we're looking at these old traditions. We're looking at Buddhist, Hindu, all these old uh, religions and trying to understand the, the nuances, what they knew and what we need to build into our society, what we're seeing now, because we're going down a very destructive path. I think most people will, will see that we are. And um, even if you look at Lao Tzu and, and uh, Taoism, he actually talked about the universe as being a feminine reality. It was a womb. The universe is a womb. So the appreciation for the woman, despite what it translated to society, was very different. It was very revered. Women were very revered. I think in a lot of the other sects, the Buddhist sects, they also revere women. But I think in, the, in Western society, where we're only looking at productivity, right? And we even look at a woman during her menstrual cycle. She's not productive because she's kind of grumpy. She's got a, you know, we don't look at that as what the true gift that it is, you know, throughout millennia. When women have come together, tremendous wisdom have come out of that. So when they went into the huts, you know, where they would, where they would bleed, what did women do? And why did we all cycle together? We cycle together to be in communion with one another and to connect, right, our energies and to come out with a tremendous wisdom. Men don't have this opportunity, right? Yeah, but when they, they have do, saunas. They have saunas, <laughs> yes, they have saunas, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's very true and you know i think at some point there was a the patriarchy shifting from uh, matriarchy to patriarchy because a lot of the ancient wisdoms were female yes. dominated and i think there was this moment like oh my gosh women are gods we give birth we are the creators yes. of course we need the, the sperm but still we are we house the child we birth the child that's we give we life. are we give life, which is a very godlike yeah. power. Yes. And that probably scared the crap out of a lot of people. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And there was also a saying too, is that, you know, about blood is that we are able to give blood without shedding, causing the shedding of blood where only men can do. And I want to bring this back to the power of women in a way as well, because I don't know if you're familiar with research that's been going on with um, heart stem cells. So, you know, in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, there's been, and I, her name escapes me now, she's a tremendous researcher, uh, a physician, and she's done research on um, human stem cells. And what she realized with the damaged cardiac tissue, 
that women's stem cells heal the cardiac tissue, but men's do not. That is really that is really powerful because if you think about how traditional medicine, Western medicine has been, we've always researched on how men had diseases and we were always finding cures for men. We never realized that there was a difference between the genes of men and women and the cell biology. So even to this day, more women die of heart attacks than men, but men have more heart attacks. Why is that? Because we tend to look at, we recognize how a man presents in the ER with a heart attack. Women present differently. So we were missing out on all of the women who were having heart attacks and that's why we're dying. So this inequity and this lack of parity, we're seeing across every aspect of our, of our world. And then I think what we're starting to recognize is this has led us to where we are today. So we need to shift the paradigm of how we're looking at things, how we're approaching medicine, how we're approaching business. Um, so I, th- I think it's very fascinating, even in looking at where we are in the fifth industrial revolution, which is about humanity, right? So it's not just the technology and riding on everything we've learned from AI, robotics um, in the fourth industrial revolution. It's how do we take what we've learned and apply humanity and say, okay, we're going to use technology to work for us, not the other way around. And we're seeing this sh- tremendous shift across the board. Look at what's happening with the innovators, right? I, you probably saw the um, social dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're seeing actually leaders step back and saying, you know what, this isn't, I'm no longer going to be part of this, this machine, right? And the damage that it's doing. That's a tremendous turn. So we yeah, have made my $2 team. billion. Dollars, so I can step back now. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But better now, right? Better than, now. than never. Yeah. Better now than never. Yeah. And hopefully, isn't it they- interesting too with the with the the robotics and the AI? I, I find this very curious that the first prototypes that are coming out are feminine visage, right? It, they're all women robots, r- women AI, female, but yes. you know, gendered female. I think that's really fascinating. Yes. And because I think that plays into the sexual, the the sexual element, you know, with that men, that humans have objectifying women, creating this thing that is subservient in a way, even though the joke's going to be on us when the AI, you know, surpass us, it won't take long. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think in a way, this is also where women, we need to continue to step into our power of, you know, the feminine is what connects to people. So what we should do is look at it and use it and not let it be, let it be our strength, right? We have to be aware and say, okay, we're not going to use it to be on the casting couch, right? But that fem, when you talk to somebody in a way where you're connecting with them, that gets you through the door and it'll keep you in the room as opposed to going the other way. So I think we need to also shift our mindset and not be the, and not victimize ourselves and say, we were given this gift, right? How do we embrace that? You know, and just even the tone of our voice, just our physical presence, our energy, um, people want that. People want that. So, and I think men want it, other women want it. And once we step into our power, it opens up the doors to unlimited, uh, unlimited possibilities of what we can achieve together. I think when there was a tearing, uh, between the yin and yang, if you will, of the feminine and masculine, when that rift happened, that's what created, I think, an environment where, the objectification was able to step in because there was a confusion, right? If, if I look at, if I feel this thing in me, but I don't know how to touch it. Generally from my experience of watching humanity, 
when we can't touch something, it makes us angry. And we don't know what it is about us that is broken or shattered or, or that is missing or whatever it is, it makes us angry. And we, we attack outward instead of going inward. That's just a, seems to be the way it is. And so it doesn't surprise me, the violence against women, the violence against that's right. Uh, children and, you know, these parts of ourselves, right? That Like our inner child. Our inner child is crying, but we don't know how to touch that. And so we hurt children, you know, things like that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think this is where it continues to happen until something great stops it. And you even look at what's going on with the virus right now and what it's forcing us to do. It is really forcing us to go inward, literally. And, you know, once we go in inward and you you have to, you know, it's that whole idea is that we have to eventually step into the constricting, right? Contracting before we expand. And if we can't do it ourselves, the universe is going to make it happen for us because we need for that to happen. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how everyone comes out of all of this. And it has broken a few people. Obviously, the suicide rate is higher. And we are on the precipice of something big. It's pretty yes. clear. Yeah. 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 And, and I wanted to mention too, I'm sorry, don't mean yeah. to interrupt. But no, I, wanted, I wanted to, uh, Henrietta Lacks is a great example of someone who gave without even of her knowledge, uh, you know, the HeLa cell that has changed the, the face of science as we know it. And it, for my listeners, anyone that has not read the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, please, please read it. It's a phenomenal book. And it, it speaks to that thing of like women giving of themselves, sometimes to their own detriment, sometimes without their own knowledge, you know, this to to save the world. You know, we are the superheroes in a lot of ways. And right. it's funny because people are like, oh, you sound like some wild feminist. I'm like, well, what is feminism exactly? Is it it's an equal stance? being respected for who I am as a person, not because I'm a woman. And you see that in advertising all the time, or you see that in um, celebrity things. So first woman, blah, first woman, this first woman, that it's like, well, let's, when we can get past that or first black person, first black woman or first Chinese, you know, you know, whatever it is, it's like when we get to lose those adjectives, that's when we'll be in a place of true equality. We don't have to have qualifiers. Anymore. Right, right. And we know we're moving in that right direction because we are seeing that. Now it's like we move past that, right? Because even years before, you never heard at first anything, woman, anything, right? So now we're moving, we're moving in the right direction. Um, yeah. And as women continue to get the opportunity to stand in a leadership role, like we're seeing all these countries, right? And how they've approached the coronavirus. Yeah, New it's, Zealand, baby. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's so all of this female leadership. But again, it's not about one or the other. It's about bringing back to balance because each of us have both of that in us. You know, even yeah. as a woman, you step into your feminine, but the part of the feminine is the contemplation. But then the action, contemplation without action gets you nowhere. So then we have right. to tap into our divine masculine to say, okay, my next steps. And it may mean that. I am guided by another, uh, somebody who is a man who's going to help me do that, but those who are connected with that. So it really ultimately life is about how do we create that balance because we've gone so far onto one side, um, Mm. but what we need both of that, both sides of that for us to survive and to thrive. I think about that growing up, I was such a tomboy and I hung out with my dad, we'd go fishing, we'd do all the, the quote unquote guy things. And I often think, you know, if that helped make me feel like a more rounded person because I did have all that experience that was traditional male gender roles, you know, 
It's interesting. I find it also fascinating. It it is so fascinating. And the role of both parents, you know, at that age between, you know, seven to 14, when, you know, in child development, as you're, as you're aware too, is like, we're trying to understand the other gender's role in our lives. So when you see a lot of the divorces that happen as it did in, in mine, there wasn't that male figure. So you're trying to figure out what that is. And then if you have a mother who's trying to heal from that pain, right? She's not being present. I think the best parent is a parent that's present. It doesn't have to be an educated parent. It's a parent that is present. And oftentimes their wounds, right, pull them and not being able to be present for that. So I think this is where a lot of girls at that age, where you see a lot of the eating disorders come about. And we're seeing a lot of the cutting, the suicides and all right at this age, because we're trying to one, separate from mother actually healthfully. And when we're not able to separate from mother because mother has a wound and mother is pulling you, right? You become that healer. And what child at that age is supposed to heal, right? It's the the other way around. So when we go through that and there is not a normal separation from mother, the child doesn't know who they are and they go through life confused. And then, and this is when you see there's the issues with sex and there's because they're trying to look for validation of who they are. Um, mm-hmm. So mothers have so much power. And, and I think, you know, when we're seeing this more balance of, you know, both women, men and, um, you know, women in the workplace balance, I think it's wonderful because like you said, if your father wasn't there to show you that part of you wouldn't kind of evolved as strong as it is to make you who you are. And, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with the human design system. It's really a self-discovery system, but it kind of breaks it down based on your personality. And I can probably say with confidence that you're a manifesting generator um, and manifesting generator just by what it sounds to. And there's a part of that, definitely that kind of came from the male energy that you felt from your father, right? The vision that you had, a lot of it was probably female contemplation. And then the generation part of it is doing probably came from some of that male energy from your father that probably was um, less, you know, maybe less visible in, um, in women because of society, not who we are authentically. It's because of what society has told us and put us in that box. So, um, yeah. And I wasn't, my mother and I were not close. And I think now as an adult, I can look back and think, okay, the ages where she was victimized when I hit those ages, you know, parents see themselves in their children. And I don't think we really quite comprehend the triggering mechanism that that creates when you're trying to deal with a child who's really a reflection of you and they enter into the age or space where you were hurt and then you're trying to deal with this reflection and yet you've been triggered because you have PTSD you may not even remember the thing or if you do you you know it, it has all this trauma around it and so as a parent reacting not to the child per se because children like dogs behave the way children like dogs behave, you know, they are what they are. And, you know, you're there to give them boundaries and, and shape them and things like that. But if you don't even know, again, how to touch that thing in you, what do you do? You lash out, which is where some of the issues come from. It certainly was with my mother. That's right. That's right. You bring up a really good point, Susan, and you talk about healing the inner child. And, you know, maybe just a moment to talk about 5D healing. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that or I'm not. You know, okay. So, you know, when we talk about the fifth dimension, um, you know, and I know you and I've touched a little bit about, you know, spiritual autonomy and the importance of spiritual autonomy um, and spiritual autonomy really is about functioning from um, not being 
influenced by not only the outside, but also your inner voices. And sometimes we know, well, those are those are outside influences. I need to quiet that noise. But there's also the noise of the inner, the inner soul. And, and I think when we tap into that and we recognize that too is when the true healing begins, but we have to kind of find the center of peace, this core inner stillness to be able to discover that. You know, when we look at the different dimensions of reality, um, and this is the fifth dimension, um, and not very different than the fifth industrial revolution. So the fifth dimension is really a level of consciousness in which, you know, we're kind of living totally from the heart. Um, when we talk about the different dimensions of reality, we usually think about it in terms of like a dot, right? Which is your zero dimension. You have two dots, which is in uh, a connected dot, which is length, and it's the first dimension. You go all the way up to, you know, second dimension, which is an, a two lines that are crossed because now you have length and width. And then you go to, let's say, a box, right? Which has length, width, and, and uh, depth. This is 3D. This is a world that we live in, right? We live in a house. Everything is in 3D. When we go into the fourth dimension, we add in time. So that is um, the third dimension, which is like a human body aging, right? So from a baby to older, that's the fourth dimension. That's the realm. Of, that's reality, time and space. The fifth dimension is this dimension where you are a baby, you become an adult, and you actually go back to being a baby. So this is where we talk about time warp and time travel. Recently, there has been, recently, I would say in the last 20 or plus years, there's been a lot of research on healing through the fifth dimension. When we heal in traditional medicine, it's really third and fourth dimension healing, right? We heal the physical body, and, but when we move into the fifth dimension, it's an energy. This goes back actually to traditional ancient Chinese wisdom and traditional Chinese medicine where it's energetic healing. This is why we're seeing more of this now because we're realizing the fragilities of Western medicine and how we're treating them. So we talk about holistic and going back to what it means to, to heal mind, body, and spirit. Right. So That's in, the healing of the mind and the healing of the, yeah, asking yes. for something almost outside of yourself, even though it's of you, that yes. closed system of energetic movement. That's exactly right. So in the fifth dimension, when we talk about healing, um, it's about, you know, it's about vibration, right? So it's physically connecting, reconnecting to your body and to a higher being through really love and through light. So now we see, you know, light therapy, all of these therapies that we're seeing, this is really five-dimensional healing. Part of Sound, the story, yeah, sound yeah, healing. Right, sound healing. So if you think about that too, a lot of that is also a regression to what you work because if you're in the fifth dimension, there it's not linear. So, and, and I often liken it to when you think of deja vu, I think that's really you popping into the fifth dimension. It's not, you know, because you feel something has happened, it's because you kind of go back and forth. And depending on where you are in your spirituality, if you can really tap into yourself, you elevate that level of consciousness that vibration gets elevated, you have a higher frequency, and you will go into the fifth dimension of healing, which is truly bliss. There's no aging, there's no pain, there's no, because you are at, you are at your core, your fifth, it, it, at this very core, which is pure, and it's totally healed. So this is very interesting, because right now there's a lot of exploration on how we can heal ourselves by bringing our, the inner child work, by bringing ourselves back to that time where there were no wounds before you that. And if we can tap into that energy and bridge in modern science, what we know about neuroplasticity and the power of the mind to change our physical body and epigenetics, this is where true healing is. 
So I think as a physician, right, part of what I was doing as an anesthesiologist is I was putting people to sleep. And that to me also became a, a dissonance within me because here I was trying to awaken to my own healing and to guide women and to support them on their journey of healing. But yet in my other life that I was making my money, I was putting people to sleep. That often, that became the impetus for me to really look at myself about this time that I actually separated from my husband as well, because I was in this depth of kind of who I am, which a lot of women go through because of that, because we've given ourselves up, you know, for somebody else or something else. And we come to a point where we're ready for that growth and we feel such a sense of emptiness, right? So we go deeply inside and we try to discover what that was. And for me, that's what it was. Looking at every aspect of my life as a doctor, I know that I've been a healer. I, from a very young age, I've always known that. But to evolve that from being a traditional Western doctor and everything that I've learned, how do I take that in a way? That was kind of in a way, like if you talk about the fifth industrial revolution, my inner, my microcosm of my fifth industrial revolution was a fourth being traditional medicine and the fifth being how do I use this towards humanity and helping others heal themselves through my journey of healing? Really stepping into the reason that I was given all of these trials and tribulations in my life and the soul pain was so that I can heal and to say my story, to speak my truth and to guide people and to support people on that and all these different levels. When I truly stepped into that knowledge, that is when I stepped into my power of doing what I'm doing now. Um, so, you know, I feel like I'm so blessed in so many aspects. The women that have come into my life, even your and my meeting, um, you know, absolute divine intervention, right? Coming in through Sarah and through Russ and then and meeting you in an instantaneous connection, all gifts, not coincidences, right? And yeah. Um, yeah. there's so much to unpack with what you just said. I want to firstly, uh, so one of the things um, we know science has said that our wounds aren't just ours. They go down through the lineage. It's in our DNA. But, and if you think about it, and I just mentioned this to someone the other day, it's like we are born of our mother's womb. She was born of her mother's womb. That's a lot of time sharing the same stuff. You know what I mean? Amniotic fluid, uh, yes. Yeah, amniotic yeah. fluid, the blood right. coursing. That's right. You know, creating a DNA based on the pattern even your father's DNA, which helps yes. create you. So then you have his lineage, his being in his mother's womb and, and all and his father's mother, you know, all that stuff. And yes. science is saying, yeah, that's a thing. And that is speaks to what you're talking about, where we're starting to go past what we know of the third dimension. Then time steps in, you know, yes. 200 years ago, if my great, great, great grandmother was raped, yes. her body registered that and it changed her it changed her yes. but on a molecular level because we know that now yes. too that that that's happens right. that's exactly right and so my being into existence somewhere in my dna is this memory of a traumatic event that's not even mine that's right that's right it didn't <laughs> start from you but it is yours now right yeah and now i get the gift of healing that wound and, and, and I often think about the fact if time isn't linear, let's just, let's just say that time is not linear. So past, present, and future all ha happening at the same time by me healing that thing, 
in me, whether I'm conscious of it or not. That's right. But going through a healing process, I retroactively heal my great, 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 great grandmother. You start thinking about that stuff and your brain really pops out of your head. Absolutely. But I love it. Yes. Yes. And think about the power when we have that knowledge, what it also does for self-acceptance. I think so much of it too, and this is also the danger of where we have too much knowledge. I think too much knowledge and you don't know what to do with it and it's taken out of context. People do things with it and it's, it's not, I don't think, very healthy. But understanding that this is very many, a lot of soul lifetime experiences. You come into a place of self-acceptance, of understand, deeper understanding, this is why and not blame right? And, and it's the gratitude knowing that when we have these experiences is how we're going to make a difference, right? If we are totally oblivious to that, we just go through life. And we know that on this life there, we have a greater soul purpose. What is our purpose? It's a collective purpose. Um, and so I think I feel very empowered knowing that it is mind blowing. All of the things that continue to happen, it's completely mind blowing. Um, but is, but it is also truly beautiful. I think it's truly beautiful to think about the essence of life and what it means. And it is an interesting thought to think also, and I talk about this a lot on the show, that we live in a closed system. The universe is as it always was when it was, you know, everything that exists existed before. It's transmogrified, but it's still here. You and I are made up of stuff that existed millions, billions of years ago. And I find that fascinating, but it also says to me, you and I are of the same stuff. Uh, me and the stranger, I'm, you know, I walk past the stranger going down the street. That person is me on a molecular level, and you know. And so when I, and this is getting to be a big idea, but when I do my work and I am healing, I'm also healing the stranger that's walking by. That gives me shivers because it's like yes. it's, when we remember how connected and closed our system is. Yes. yes. Then it's then it becomes this massive holy shit moment. Yes. I have chills on my body when you said that, because if you think about that's humanity, right? When, when we start identifying with each other as being one in the same, our emotions are all the same. It doesn't matter where you live. We all want peace, happiness, and fulfillment. doesn't matter what we look like on the outside, you know, or how big our house is or how little our house is or no house that we have. When we can connect with each other on that very basic level, that's humanity. Being able to recognize that is elevating consciousness of the world. So many people are seeing this right now. That is hopeful. That is hopeful because ultimately, what is it about, Susan? It's about self-preservation and evolution of the human species. It's not you or me, it's us. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, now before we get too far away from the eating disorder thing, I do wanna touch base on that because I think people have a little understanding where when that hasn't been in their orbit, they think, oh, this person just wants to be skinny. And let me just take that out of the equation. It's not about that. So can we talk about that just really quick for people that don't know, um, since you've lived it, uh, what it's about? Yeah. So at least for you. Sure. Sure. So eating disorders often stem, they, with this, with an idea of perfectionism and it's a perfectionism that usually comes down from, some kind of soul loss. And so for me, it started out with my, and it's also, it's always tends to be a mother and a daughter dynamic. So, and it goes back to the idea of a woman needs to be beautiful to keep her man, to, to be attractive to the world. Now, my father left my mother for a younger, thinner woman, right? 
So the message at that age, when I was forming my idea of what it is to be a woman, it was that I needed to be thin, beautiful, et cetera, fill in the blanks. So when that kind of came into play in my world, that became my reality, right? And then my perfectionism, right? So everything had to be this. So that became what I started living. But it was also, it's multi-layered. It wasn't only that. When we're not able to speak our truth, right? It becomes a, you know, eating is really metaphoric, right? Somebody makes you eat something or gives you something you don't necessarily like. You turn around and you throw it up. You're not happy with it. It doesn't sit right in your gut. It doesn't feel right. When we disconnect from our body, which is what I did, when you disconnect from it because it was painful, right? This is what you damage your body in this way. And the gut is a seat of so much of our emotions, The gut harbors 95% of the serotonin, the feel good, right? The mood regulators in our body. So if you think about it, you know, when the brain and the gut evolved embryologically, they evolved at the same time. So when you have an emotion, pain, suffering, anger, loss, you feel it in your gut. That's why we have gut instincts. It's not also a coincidence that the damage that is done to you is from the gut. So there's this kind of this mind-body connection with the eating disorder, this concept of who we are in our head, and this inability to really express who we are and to speak our truth. All of those things come in, and it's energy. It's energy that keeps on going round and round. And we know energy can't be destroyed. It could be changed or transmuted, right? But if you don't know how to let that energy out, it just does circles in your body constantly, and it creates disease. This is the whole concept of traditional Chinese medicine is unbalanced energy, qi, right? And certain organs, because organs are associated with different emotions, causes toxicity in that organ. So, you know, and and this also goes back to the chakra system, the throat chakra and the different, and when you come to a deeper understanding of kind of who you are and where a lot of your energy sits, and for Mm -hmm. where I am, this is also something that actually brings in astrology, cosmology, because just like you said, Susan, we are of the earth, the, the celestial planets. It is all us. The, the matter, the energy, it's all the same. So when there's movement in the sky, when something's going on in the planets, it's affecting us. And how we don't really step into this and we recognize this. And we earlier touched about when women cycle and we cycle to the moon, right? And that's when we have, when we see the full moon and or the new moon and then the full moon. There's a reason for this. So yeah, I, I don't think, think men realize that they too are on a cycle. They don't, and they exactly, acknowledge it. But if you, because if you ask any police or any emergency don't. services, they can tell you that under a full moon, shit hits the fan, right? The ENTs right. and the police right. officers are like, it gets wild and crazy That's in right. a full moon. Yeah. That's right. And because we try to use, you know, for the, the male paradigm, you try to control it. No, I can control this. Going back to letting it go and flowing with life, right? That is like number one in healing is you just have, and what it allows us to say too, right? It's the energy of the universe. You have to flow with the universe. And um, so going back to the eating disorder and all of this energy, and at the age when we talked about from seven to 14, we are energy generators. Children are energy generators. They don't know what to do with their energy. And as parents, our role should be to help you 
kind of let that energy out. That's why creativity is tremendous during the age of seven to 14. Mm. And all different, is it art? Is it music? Is it learning a different language? Um, is it being out in nature? It's all of these things are ways for us to diffuse the energy that we're producing, that we're supposed to be producing at that age. So for me, both my sister and I were uh, bulimic, 13 and 14 years of age. So this is also a reason when I had my children, my daughters, how scared I was. I was like, how am I going to be a role model for them with this healing? So that's kind of really, you know, and, and there's so many other layers to that, but I think that's the core. If you go back to um, the approach to, you know, how people are treating it right now, a lot of people are, you know, giving medications. Like I've tried it as well and it didn't work for me. It actually made me lose weight. My point is medications serve a purpose, but you have to understand the core of that illness. You're not just taking away a symptom. So if you are saying that it's a compulsive behavior and you're giving somebody medication for the compulsive behavior, you're not addressing why that behavior is. And you're only looking, you only have your eye on one thing. Never mind, everything else is going on. That is the band-aid, band-aid for bullet holes. Exactly. (laughs) And what happens with the bullet hole? You bleed to death. Right. But, oh, I've got the Band-Aid on there, which you bleed to death. Or you get uh, diseased on the inside out from it. You get an infection. That's right. Yeah. And people don't understand, too, when I talk about this sometimes with my friends who, you know, when you reach for the muffin and then you say to yourself, oh, even if you don't have a quote unquote eating disorder, the minute your brain says to you, oh, that you should feel guilty or, oh, that's going to do this or, oh, I'm going to have to work out extra hard. That's an eating disorder. You got that right. And I think, see, we're so used to labeling what that looks like, right? Your obsession or anything that you do, even healthful eating, right, is an eating disorder. When you eat only, if you're only, I would even, sir, sir, um, actually even say that when you are on a rigid diet, whether you're, I'm a vegan, I'm a, there is an eating issue there because our human body isn't meant to be so restrictive. We're supposed to eat to what we feel, right? And when we disconnect from what we feel, this is where we get into issues. That's why even vegans have problems. I prefer to eat uh, plant-based only because as I mature, my body tolerates the food better, right? But we also know that when you are on a strict vegan diet, you miss out on a lot of the minerals and the nutrients, right? The human bodies were never meant to be restrictive. And so, so many of the issues that we continue to see and perpetuate is because we continue to restrict ourselves. And here we are disconnecting from what our body needs, right? So, and I think going back to healing, healing has to come from, when we talked about fifth dimension healing, it's coming from a place in the heart that's feeling, not up here in the head. So when we are able to disconnect, you know, what we're telling ourselves and what society tells us and what we're truly feeling is when we begin our journey of healing. How did you find yourself drawn to anesthesiology? That's a really great, great question. I think I was always fascinated by the body's interaction, not only with what drugs do to the body, but what bodies do to the drug, actually. So somebody can take the same drug, but depending on your composition, you can alter the effect of the drug. That to me was always fascinating because it goes back to speaking that there's not a one size fits all for anybody and how unique we are. And when I really tapped into understanding that and how I can help in some way control like the whole idea of pain is pain really pain if your body, if your brain doesn't perceive that pain, right? You have a, a damage to your skin, that's pain. But if I cut the connection to your brain, are you really experiencing pain? 
that whole concept is very fascinating to me. And just the whole idea of going back to the healing is taking pain away from people. And I think that was always my soul's journey is how do I take pain away? And partly going back to my soul experiences, I had a lot of pain, but I would never, I didn't take drugs. I think part of it was because I feared, you know, I was, I always thought that growing up that I had a compulsive behavior, um, a personality because of my eating disorder. Little did I realize that those have nothing to do with each other. They have very little to do with each other. So, but knowing that the ability to be able to take somebody's pain away and to heal them and to really cradle them, I think was always what was very comforting to me. And even when I practice medicine, I remember I always knew or practice anesthesia, what I always used to do with my patients before they went to sleep, before I put them to sleep, is I would always whisper in their ear. I would always implant thoughts. You're going to do great. Take some deep breaths for me. Nice deep breaths. You're going to go into a beautiful space. You're calm. Your heart rate is slowing down. And to set them into that space. And when they came out of the anesthetic, I would do the same thing. I didn't realize I was actually hypnotizing them in a way, but I'm setting their mindset before the medicine actually works. So coming out of anesthesia is the same thing. The first thing that comes back is hearing. They may not be able to move, but they can hear you. So when I start telling them, take some nice, slow, deep breaths. You're doing great. The procedure went beautifully. The, between the placebo effect that what I'm putting into and just guiding them into this natural light, they wake up more peaceful and calm. And I remember surgeons used to say to me, I used to do a lot of neck surgeries where I didn't do the surgery, but I gave the anesthesia where they did spinal fusions and neck fusions. And the patient could not, what we call an anesthesia, buck when you pulled out the tube, because if they bucked, then they would you know, crack whatever they were doing. And I would always be able to extubate the patient so smoothly. And the doctors were always like, you extubated already? And it was because I used this hypnosis part of it. I didn't call it hypnosis at that time. I was just talking. And just being very sensitive. And I think what made me a very good anesthesiologist, I was highly sensitive to everything, right? I could see like the little breaths, even the depths, if they were breathing, it was like this or like this. There's a little... But if you think about it, sensitivity was my competitive advantage. But in life, as women, what are we told? Oh, yeah, exactly. right? yeah. So it's, it's a detriment, it, yeah. It's a detriment, right? Our sensitivity is also what is allowing us to connect to the changes that need to happen in this universe. Sensitivity mm -hmm. is what allows us to connect to my child. If my child is hungry and is upset, like how do I nurture a child? I have to first and foremost be sensitive. How can I be a good partner if I'm sensitive to their emotions and their feelings and the energy that they're putting out? But yet in yeah. this world, what do men say? Oh, you talk too much or you're, you know, the, and most recently there was a ja former Japanese, I don't know if it was a prime minister, remember he had to step down because he said women talk too much. Yeah, Women talk, that. right? So you think about how society looks at this, like things that we have that is raising the consciousness of the world and healing the world, we're being told that we shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. So it's just- That's, it's, that's it, that fear though, right? That's yeah. the fear of, of the, the infinite yeah. energy that yeah. can be terrifying for it, people. Absolutely. I can just imagine floating off with your, you have such a lovely voice. I, I imagine it would be very relaxing <laughs> to hear. <laughs> Explain what anesthesia is, because I think many people don't know. They're like, okay, my doctor makes me count down from 10. I maybe get to eight and then I wake up in a recovery room. What the hell happened in between? 
Right, right. So anesthesia, there are a couple of different kinds of anesthesia too. There's general anesthesia and there's local anesthesia. And at the local level, anesthesia just affects cells and um, the, the, the sodium and the calcium channels. So I think at the local level, that's how it does to numb the conduction of, um, of pain. So it's really stopping at the different levels of the spinal cord, the transmission of nerve cells and nerve fibers. So that's how we do it. So, and, um, you know, depending on inhalational anesthetics, um, IV anesthetics that go through your vein, it all works on the central nervous system to really dampen uh, the anesthetic response or the perception of pain. How though, how does it work? Yeah, right. It's, it's magic. <laughs> it so, feels but like it, magic. It's, it's, through, it's the chemical. It's really the gateways, the sodium channels and the gateways, and it doesn't transmit. So if you, you know, pain is really, uh, it travels up nerve fibers, right? So, but if you stop that transmission of that nerve fiber, you're not going to feel the pain and you can't perceive it up in the brain, in the head. So, That's wow. where you're pre- yeah. perceiving that. So, it's just um, sort of what acupuncture does. It yeah, stops and, the transmission of the... Yeah. Right. Through meridians of energy. So yeah. acupuncture, that's exactly what it does. And through, and yeah. It, re- it really brings back what we were talking about in the beginning of this conversation about the healing of the mind. And if we think about every ailment that happens again in our body, it's a closed system. What is the brain capable of? Could it stop cancer in its tracks? And we just don't know how to do that yet. Could it, you know, keep autoimmune diseases from happening or reverse them for that matter? That stuff fascinates me. I think about the monks who go into that sort of stasis and can control their pain or you know and their breathing and and they can even bring themselves to a point where a doctor might think they were dead but they're not yeah or the guy that could uh hold his breath for 30 minutes you know yeah. <laughs> it's, it's right. extraordinary it is a ma- the mind is such a powerful thing um now we know because of the study of epigenetics too how you know all because the mind and thoughts are energy right and energy is what changes the chemistry, the chemicals in your body. So instead of looking, and that's why we also look at toxicity in the environment, it's an energy that gets translated. You breathe it in, right? Or you eat it. And it, the chemistry of it is what changes your cell membrane and your cell biology. So if we can understand how powerful our mind is and we can control our mind, we can absolutely change our cell biology. That's the basis of epigenetics, right? That we also know now. So going back to autoimmune disorders, I absolutely believe, why does a body reject itself? That's what autoimmune disease is. Why at some point? I truly believe that the toxicity that we've created in our head, right, in our mind, creates actually a chemical toxicity. That toxicity in our body, depending on the emotion, goes to a certain organ. And the organ harbors all that toxicity. It becomes so changed that the rest of the body, the immune system, doesn't recognize it. And this is why I believe you have autoimmune disorders, because it's fighting itself in something that is so damaged and so morphed, um, you know, that that's what it's, it's doing. It's attacking that part of you. So how do we use our mind to start changing, reversing that? And we can. And it goes back to, and this is why meditation, mindfulness, and finding that inner peace because we're trying to relieve the toxicity and a lot of the things we're doing to try to detox, right? Detoxing foods and all of that is one thing, but I think our greatest toxicity for humans is our mind and all of that chatter that we have constantly, right? The negative chatter, um, the chatter that doesn't come from a place of peace or love, 
that is all toxicity. Um, and, and I think when people aren't heard, that also can turn, can turn into a lot of toxicity. So that's why I think it's so important for us to have all of us to go on a journey of a deeper exploration or to find or to discover who we are and how we can best express ourselves. That is why we see art is so healing. Right? It's a mm -hmm. way to express ourselves, not just through the mouth, right? Through our creative energy in so many different ways. And that's why we're seeing that the healing arts and you yourself too, you have, you are so creative in so many levels and so many ways. I'm wondering too, for you, do you see that as part of healing in your journey? Yeah, absolutely. It is. And it, it's cropped up in various places and time. And uh, like for painting, for example, when I paint, I don't have any agenda. I mean, even if I have a commission, I know I'm, I'm heading towards something, but I don't go into it. I, it's completely intuitive. There's no, I don't sketch anything out. I don't, and I didn't study art other than I look at it, something beautiful. And I think that's cool or something I don't like. And I go, nah, you know, whatever, like everybody else, but I don't, I don't come to, a, I don't judge it. I just do it. And it's weird. Cause I think we've talked about this is one minute it's not done. And then suddenly it is. And you just know, well, how I have no idea. I just know it's a gut thing. Yes. Yeah. It's a gut, I, again, love when you gut say, I love when you say that because the intuition and you are actually tapping into 5D healing when you do this, because in the fifth dimension, again, you are your true self, right? The core of your authentic being. And it's a reality with no fear, no judgment, no polarity. You are, you just are. So I think when women, when we talk about who we are as beings and love and even unconditional love, unconditional love is what we do what we do for other people or other people do for us. It's a state of being, right? You emanate love. And, and when you come from that pace, place of pureness, non-judgment, total self-acceptance, your creative juices, it's like a fountain that comes forth. And yeah. that, that healing energy is infectious. You know, and I, I think we're seeing more and more women who, it's the DIY age, right? That started happening. Oh and, man, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. during the pandemic. The pandemic has been a perfect time for people to go, you know what, I'm going to finally try this thing that I've always thought about doing or right. maybe in the moment inspiration. Right. So I'm hoping yeah. more and more women too, and men, not just only women, but more and more, you know, women and men start tapping into their inner knowing to start healing themselves. Because one of the first mm -hmm. steps we have to do to kind of get into that fifth dimension of pure health and pure goodness is to detach from the idea that our healing comes from outside, that somebody mm -hmm. else to give our power away. I think, well, that's one of the, the biggest things that, um, you know, Western society or society has taught us is that the answer is always outside. Even doctors, I think in the medical uh, care industry and healthcare, particularly, right. It's always about a pill. I'll give you a pill. So it's about a pill. A, right. Or go to it's a doctor easiest, in a white coat. It's the easiest way. Yeah. It is. For it's them. a quick fix. Right. Exactly. Quick fix, but it does not fix the root of the issue. No. And at some point as patients, we have to say, you know, if I'm going to a surgeon, I'm going to expect that he's going to cut right? That's what he's going to do. That's what he does. So before I step into that place, which I know is going to be influenced, you know, by whatever they do, I have to look as truly, if I want holistic healing, I got to look inside myself first and tap into, mm -hmm. the, but there's fear. Like, what if I don't know? Of course, you know, like mothers, you know, you weren't for them for, for many, many, I think for maybe millennia, people didn't have a playbook. They didn't have, this is how you be a mother right? You tap into it and you're a mother, right? And then I think the most powerful moms are the ones that are present and you don't kind of let all of this talk in it. You know, it's good always to get guidance, 
But I think when you go from the heart and your intuition. Hmm. Yeah, is- there was an episode of House, the medical show House that I watched in. And how uh, uh, Hugh Laurie, who's the lead character, Greg House, he said a comment. He said, you know, if you take it to a neurologist, it'll be a brain thing. If you take it to a pulmonary person, it'll be a lung thing. If you take, you know, if you take it to an infectious disease person, it's probably an infectious disease. Might not be all, any of those things might be all those things, but it is an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, I I look to kids when they get sick, which is such a tragedy. And especially when they are, uh, when they have terminal cancers or disorders that will kill them. And, and I think, and I think about the few children I have known with terminal disease and just those that I have watched on videos or in documentaries and that sense of weird calm that many of these children have like little, I don't even want to say adults because adults are hardly ever calm, but it's that thing of when we as a human race look to our children as the little god buddhas that they are without hurting them without with under like looking at them like they actually know stuff i love having conversations with little kids their minds are insanely fertile and and fascinating and everything to them is an experience that joy you know and then they get hurt by yeah. us, uh, yeah. by by the outside world, um, by disease. But although they seem to take the being hurt by disease with much more grace than being hurt by another, it is a great tragedy. You know, yeah. that's why I always say, when we as a society grow to stop hurting animals and stop hurting children, right? We will we have gotten there. evolved. Yes, we will have yeah. evolved. And when you said that little children are Buddha, um, Buddhas. I also want to show that I think children who are sick that come to this world are the ones that are fully evolved. You know, we often say, oh, poor. And you talk about this. Yeah. These, you talk about like this peace that they, they have this all knowing, right. This sense of peace. They are here to teach us a lesson. Susan, we're not, they're not here for anything but that, right. They are very traumatic for for the parents, but yeah, it is. I also think those children are gifted to families and who have the opportunity to make a change and make a difference in the world. Because I look at some of the children that have come into this world and the families and the, the women that I've known. These women are extraordinary women. And the things that they have done with their children and men too, not just women, that is actually so, so powerful. If you think so, we don't come from a standpoint, like you said, of, of the children, it's like the poor child, they're above us. They recognize yeah. us and they're going to teach I us humanity. So. They are going to teach us about humanity. Yeah. And you make a, uh, you make a good point as well. Like I think about, you know, we have the Amber Alert because of a child that gave her life to making the world safer. You know, we have Adam's law, you know, we have, we have different, uh, we have Megan's law. We have like all these, these uh, things that are now in place because of children who unfortunately met their ends, but then because of that end changed the world. That's right. Can it's I also, hard to wrap your head around it, that kind of stuff, though. Yes, wrap your head around this one, too. I also think what we're also seeing now in our children that aren't necessarily dying but are actually suffering, children with ADHD and dyslexia and neurodiversity, we are seeing more and more children having this diagnosis. Now, do you know why? Well, one, people say, well, we just have better ways of diagnosing this. That may be true, but I also think there's a greater purpose for this happening. These children with neurodiversity, 
are the game changers of the world. They're the ones that are going to elevate our consciousness because like Albert Einstein said, right? Problems that were caused by this consciousness can't be solved by the solutions in the same consciousness, right? Right. So these children are the entrepreneurs, like their brains are the entrepreneurs. And what do entrepreneurs do? They think out of the box and they create solutions for the problems of the world. So we're seeing more and more of these children who are have ADHD and dyslexia. And what are we doing? We're marginalizing a lot of them. We're drugging right? it. We're drugging it. We're drugging them. Thank God. My mom had many, many qualities that maybe didn't make for a great mother. But when they came to her and said, your daughter is, you know, is right. ADHD and, and, yeah. she, and I definitely had dyslexia. And she said, absolutely, you won't drug my child. That's right. And so I, I might have lit my room on fire twice and dismantled, you know, the toaster oven and, you know, did all the weird things that kids who are hyper fucking active do. But if she had dampened that and I've been around kids that are on those drugs and they just turn into zombies yes. and that fertile brain that fertile, I think it's a, the parents that are like, oh, just throw them in front of the TV and give them drugs. It's like, oh, my God, what a missed opportunity you you've. And I don't, I don't pretend to know what it's like in any family. I don't, and I don't have children myself, but I have nannied and I've been around kids whose brains just go a million miles an hour. That's right. And the things that they come up with, like, these are the folks that are going to save us. Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly right. So, you know, when going back to from the mouth of babes and what, you know, are these children are doing, how can we continue as mothers? Because again, fathers historically, right, we're in the workplace, right? And moms are at home taking the care of the children. So if we can continue to support the mothers and say, yes, go forth and don't think about drugging your kids, maybe at a certain point, look, I think there's a place for medication. Sometimes you need to push the reset button, right? Because if you're trying to kind of build wellness into them and they are, their mind can't even be calm enough to learn those tools, then we have yeah. an issue. But sure. sometimes it's a, a reset button and then so that they can learn these things. But the, the, the whole treatment isn't about drugging them and making them zombies, right? That's and, and I think, like you said, it's such a missed opportunity. And this is all happening for a reason. So can we step back and look at why this is happening? Why are we seeing more of these children? Because look at our fucking planet. Look what's happening, yeah, right? I know. And our so, school system isn't set up to help children who think differently. You know, right. like the teachers are taxed uh, emotionally yes. and they're not paid enough and the, the classes are overrun. So when, when children do have uh, different learning styles and when they, they are staring out the window, those kids are just as valuable as the yes. kids that are reciting the times tables. Actually, they're more valuable. All kids are equal. But having said that, too, I think this is right. And I think going back to also why are our teachers tax and overworked? We don't value education. Absolutely. Right? right. We don't value. What yeah. do we value? Look at the things we don't we, value imagination either. No, we don't. Creativity. Especially you as know? a child. And I think children, part yeah. of this learning diversity is giving them. Yeah. 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 So, wh- what a great time, I think, even because these conversations that we continue to have, more and more people are, you know, part of these conversations. And it's about bringing awareness. Um, to our children and to the way that the paradigm of how things are working and how that needs to be completely turned on its head. It's not even shifted as we need to turn it up, you know, on its head. Um, and that's the only way that we will save our species, you know, save the planet, yeah. save the universe. So you, you've uh, come out of the anesthesiology world now. Have you retired from anesthesiology and now you're focusing on something else? Are you still doing that? What's, what's, yeah. what's next for you? Okay. 
what's next for me? So Gifted Taste is my company. And so it's a, a holistic wellness experiential platform. I still practice anesthesia twice a month. And I only practice with a gastroenterologist who's an amazing person. And part of the reason is going back to the mind-body connection. What I start, what I continue to see more and more is people coming into the surgery center asking for colonoscopies and procedures done, looking for something when they realize that a lot of their gut problems, there's nothing organically wrong with them. They don't have an infection or they don't, but a lot of it is the mind-body connection. So I'm seeing a lot of the anxiety that's manifested in their gut. A lot of it, I'm seeing younger children, younger kids come into, whereas before we would see, you know, the 50, 60 year olds, then we started seeing the 30 year olds, 20 year olds now who are all manifesting this issue. So for me, it's about keeping real on understanding like how this is evolving and what, what can I do and, you know, make a difference. So mm -hmm. Gifted um, Taste is this platform that not only do we create retreats supporting women, virtual and in-person retreats in Los Angeles, um, in the arts, culture, and cuisine, but Gifted Health is really a second opinion. It's a virtual second opinion consultation for complex medical issues related to digestive disorders and women's health issues. Because in supporting these women who are on this journey of holistic wellness, we also want to make sure that we are not missing something on the health you know, in the health realm to that something needs to be addressed. Sure. Um, our third platform is gifted um, luxury, which is wellness, spiritual and medical tourism. So it's around the world. Uh, we'll take in small groups of, of people to experience um, healing on that level. And the final thing that I'm so passionate also about is helping women and helping different brands evolve their brands. So gifted evolution is about how do we, you know, purpose-driven um, companies, um, how do we continue to get your message out in a way that people understand and um, will be able to join your cause? That's Gifted Evolution. So it's a brand refinement and evolution consultancy for our next generation entrepreneurs, because that's my passion. Right. How do I uplift women-led ventures, women-driven organizations, and next generation social entrepreneurs? I love that. I want to talk the anti-Asian rhetoric that's going on in this country and probably globally, but we live here. So let's talk right. about here. Um, right. And then you and I are in a writer's group on Sunday night and uh, you were asked by, uh, was it, was it Larry Joel. that asked you? Was it oh, Joel? Oh, oh, oh yeah, you're right. It was, Larry. it was Larry. Yeah. Larry asked you if you had noticed any, um, anything out of the ordinary from your everyday life being you know, of Asian descent. So have you noticed anything different? And then let's dig into that big topic. Sure, sure. I think, you know, a couple things. Um, I, that question is so full. I have so many thoughts that swivel in my head. And the most recent thing is, I think in the New York Times, there was a comment about the most recent shooting that just happened yesterday of this man in Colorado in Telluride. Yes. And they likened it to the, um, what Boulder. happened in it was Atlanta. Boulder. Yeah, the yeah. Boulder shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. Boulder, right. So Boulder. Yeah. And they liken to what happened in Atlanta. And the fact that they juxtapose it is, again, this is part of what we see as structural racism. They are discounting the fact that what happened in Atlanta was for a different reason. It was not just a crazy person who did this. That insidious to what happened in Atlanta, it was something very different than that is what happened in, um, in Boulder. So I think this is another example of when we talk about structural racism, how that is along with the myth of the mile minority. This is actually what has kept uh, different races segregated and attacking each other and how it perpetuates racism for all of us. 
um, because one, it's really like gaslighting. It doesn't exist. This happened because this was a crazy person. So again, we discount the fact that this was racially motivated. Um, that is very detrimental because unless we can start to understand one, why it happened, the history of why it happened and how we are all individually perpetuating it on some level because we have benefited um, racism, structural racism, we are never going to begin to heal and never begin to dismantle and create new systems and new processes where we are no longer living um, you know, amongst structural racism. I think that is one of the biggest problems. And I can say this personally, because I have been one of, as a first-generation Chinese American, this has been a very powerful journey because it has actually allowed me to look into what my role is in, in perpetuating structural racism. And in our conversation that we had earlier with Larry, one of the things that I shared with you that affected me a lot was my role in my brothers um, in, you know, in our upbringing. Um, my brother now looking back, it was very powerful because I started, I haven't spoken to my brother for years. And this was part of a dynamic of a, a very, um, a, a terrible, a, a very painful upbringing, a childhood upbringing where my parents were divorced, but um, where the children, you know, began assuming roles that they shouldn't have, which many of us do when we are, you know, children of divorced parents. And we suffer a lot of the trauma after that. And one of the situations in this was that it was, a, a, again, a, a situation of abandonment where my parents, who were both born in China, came to the United States, were educated here um, from the age of 39 and on. My father was an oral maxillofacial surgeon and my mother was a nurse. Um, they went through a very terrible divorce and the abandonment that was suffered was my father was not present in the family. So I have a younger brother and an older sister. We're all within three years apart. My sister and I and our entire family, now in hindsight, what I realize is that we were products of this uh, myth of the model minority. And this is what tore actually apart our family in many ways. There are many layers, as you know, when children come from divorced families. But this is one of the things that I've been actually forced to look at very recently with what has been going on in, um, in, our, in our society. So my brother, who and, was, and really quick, I want to I want to cut in because the myth sure. of the model minority for people that don't understand all Asians are good at math. They're all going to yes. be lawyers or doctors, you know, and all that, which, sure. of course, is insane. Right. But there's an exactly. expectation that's within, within because it's I mean, a lot of the uh, stereotypical joking about it within the Asian community is like, oh, are you going to you better get straight A's? You better become a doctor. You that's better. Right. That's like a, a zeitgeisty thing as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so what is a, a you know, model myth minority or model minority myth, right? It, this is the model minority is really based on stereotypes. It perpetuates a narrative in which Asian American children are whiz kids or musical geniuses. And that this myth of this model minority is that tiger moms, right, force their children to work harder and be better than everybody else, where they have these fathers who are these more effeminate dads who hold prestigious but really not non-leadership roles, positions in like medicine or accounting. But this myth characterizes Asian Americans as being polite, law-abiding, who have achieved success through, you know, in the general population by their innate talent and by being just working hard, putting your nose to the grindstone and just working hard. So when you look at this on the outside, it says, oh, this is just a characterization and people talk about this, but why is this detrimental? 
for a couple of reasons. First reason, it erases all the differences among people. It says that all Asians are the same, meaning that all Asians are innately smart and they're all musical whizzes. So if you can imagine if you are a child who isn't innately smart, innately smart, and isn't a musical genius, there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with your parents, right? They're not, they're not educating you in the right way. Secondly, the reason that it's harmful is that it doesn't actually account for the diversity of Asian American cultures, right? You're all the same, Japanese, Chinese, you're all lumped in the same, same, uh, same pot. And it doesn't allow us to look how individually our different races have been, um, you know, there are the racist uh, things that have happened in history, right? It's just one thing that we talk about it, it as opposed Japan to- Japan and China, that's a huge one. Right, oh or God. even the Filipinos, it's, you know, oh, the Pacific, yeah. so all of that, right? It doesn't account yeah, yeah. for that. And yeah. the final thing that I think is one of the most, um, the most horrific reasons for following the myth of the model minority is that it allows uh, us to segregate races, right, in a hierarchy, so the Asians are at the top of the hierarchy because they've been successful, they've done well, and they've kept their nose to the grindstone and they haven't said anything. They haven't created any noise, right? Whereas the black and the brown, what have happened there? They're creating all of this problem. Why can't you be like the Asians? Well, it basically recruits us Asians, right, to perpetuate this and to say, yeah, the, you know, the black people are the same. Why don't they just do that? If we all look at our roles as Asians, we have all at one time, and this is the part that is about vulnerability and how do we must face what we individually have done. And in this process and understanding this and looking back and seeing that a part of this myth of the model minority is structural racism, right? And what is structural racism? You know, in this, when you talk about uh, the MMM, I'll just say for, for uh, simplistic reasons, um, you know, what is structural racism? Structural racism is where public policies, institutional practices, and cultural representations all perpetuate inequality yeah. of different racial groups. We've stopped to even look at that anymore. That's just, that is our normal. So when we don't look at that, we're not able to stop and put or dismantle what those institutions and what organizations and what our beliefs have become. Sure. And there's a lot of money to be made in that third one. Yes. I mean, I'm sure in the first two as well, but that third one. Lots of money to be yes. made. Yes, exactly. And even in very well-meaning, um, visible politicians who are Asian Americans, and I think most, you know, recently there was an op-ed piece that, or a little while ago, that Andrew Yang uh, wrote, and I believe it was in the Washington Post, where he talked about Asian Americans as being part of the cure of the pandemic. I think his intentions were, well, he was well-intended. But I think what he was basically saying was that in order to succeed, you have to be Americanized, right? But that Americanized is what the whites have. This institution has said that we need yeah. to be, right? Right. Like, what does it even mean? Right. That's right. What does it even mean? And so when we, as you know, Americans or any other race, when we go along with that, we are not look, discounting our history. When we discount our history, we're not able to make those changes and see why it is detrimental. So even, you know, looking at the history, not only, you know, where this, we're talking about, you know, how it all started and the colonization of uh, many, you know, Chinese pe people, how that all happened. I started looking in my personal life and how it has affected me. And when I kind of, when I looked at how it did affect my family life, um, I was, I, I had this overwhelming 
like feeling of a lot of pain and a lot of shame and a lot of guilt for my role in, in my brother's life and the pain that he has had to endure after my father left. So, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, my brother, so my sister and I were 11 months apart and my brother was two years younger than I was going through school. My sister did well academically. I did well academically. So all the teachers, when Patrick came along, they said, oh, well, he must be super smart. He must, you know, play an instrument and he just must be really polite and sweet and all of that. Well, you know what? Pat wasn't like that. And in fact, I think part of the reason he acted out was my brother probably had a neurodiversity. He probably had ADHD and he probably had dyslexia, unrecognized by anybody in the school system and in the Chinese um, culture too. Not only did we not recognize that, oftentimes, if even if we did in that generation, you know, uh, when I was growing up, we probably would never have admitted or, got, or sought help for it. I would, would imagine it would have a lot of shame. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, of shame around that. Right. Yeah. Especially yeah. being 76th generation of Confucius, right? And yeah. that was my lineage. So to be able to admit that there was something inherently wrong with our mind or our brain, that would have never happened. Having also, if your brother stands out as being different than you and your sister, then that's an internalized shame that he's also dealing with, which of course, uh, we know that internalized shame oftentimes creates a, a paradigm where one will act out and from doing drugs or alcohol or violence or just checking out completely. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. what you said is exactly right. And if you think about it in the context, and how do I perpetuate that? I was, I said the same thing. Pat, you just need to work harder. You need to study hard. You're just not studying. You're just lazy. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that brings me a lot of pain because I know that my journey of healing has been, you know, I've, I've always shared with you too, that a lot of challenges I believe in life is to really elevate our level of consciousness and where we need to change our perspectives about things. I was blessed with a daughter who has dyslexia. That was the greatest gift for me. I think that on top of recognizing, that has allowed me actually to recognize not only my own neurodiversity and how for me, instead of you know recognizing that I had this neurodiversity, I just put in more hours. So if it would take somebody two hours to do something, it would take me 10 hours to do it, but I did it. But to what in the end, to what pain and to what suffering, to what physical illness did that cause to do that and not recognizing you know, our, our individual differences? And to Pat, Patrick, my younger brother, what you said was absolutely right. He was going through a father who had abandoned us, right? So there was that loss of trust, of abandonment and, um, and fear. And if you recall between the ages of seven to 14, right? Children are evolving their sense of self, right? They're looking at their role models. They're trying to disc, you know, and, and establish their identity. If they're constantly told there are these things and not to recognize who they are, They're forever lost. And then the next stage of their life, when they're seeking justice, safety, what that looks like, it'll look very different for a child who hasn't gotten that. So Yeah, and it's very dangerous also to say to a child, you're the man of the family now. That's exactly right. Could not be, that is truly one of the worst things you could say to a kid. That's, That's exactly right. So now he had the Chinese idea, right? His culture that he had to be the man, but on top of it, he couldn't get good enough grades, right? So then everyone told him, and at that time, education was, you had to get great grades to get into a great college. Nobody was talking about post-high school education reform as we are today, right? Where you don't necessarily have to go to a four-year institution or even an Ivy League to be successful in life. Because what is life success, right? It's fulfillment and finding your higher purpose. We've already right there taken you know that away from, from him. So here he had my father's abandonment. He had his family who was supposed to keep him safe 
And what were we telling him? He was lazy. He wasn't doing enough. And then he had, like you said, all that inner dialogue. Is it no surprise that today my brother has high blood pressure? He's a type 2 diabetic. He's overweight. And we know what all of that mental pain does to your physical well-being and to your body. So mm-hmm. for me, there was a lot of pain truly looking at my role in within our family and how I perpetuated this you know, model minority myth and um, how I need to actually not only look at that, but embrace it and to address it. So, you know, after not speaking to my brother for years, when you ask, what has this been for me? Or when Larry asked, what has been this been for me? I reached out to my brother and I had the most beautiful conversation with him um, about this. And this was the first time I have to say ever in my life, because even when he was young, he would always fight me. We would we could never have a conversation more than 10 minutes. Now I recognize it was because he was coming from this place of lack of safety. And, and here's the other thing. My brother, we all seek safety in different ways. And, um, and and I think I look at it and I've shared with you with my eating disorder. And part of my eating disorder is finding perfection. Perfection to me, if I'm perfect, I'll be safe. Pat found it going outwards and he really uh, was connected to guns. So even today, today he, is, he educates people about guns. He's a pro you know, gun person, so different from me. But when he was going through that, I immediately judged him. I didn't think that his, as a male, and, and with the fragility that he had, he sought firearms to feel safe. Really, it's a great Maybe. phallic symbol, of That's course. That's right, exactly. Yeah. And here I was judging him on that and saying, yeah. oh, you're going to the dark side. You're going to the people who are using guns. And right, so this also separated us even further. So this was the first time I ever had a conversation with him, as long as I can remember in our adult life, where you know we, I listened to him, and felt a lot of empathy, and he listened to me. And we shared also not only our pain of what we experienced, but it was that understanding of understanding where we both came from and where, where things kind of went, went wrong and how we can both get back on the track. For me, this was healing to have this conversation with him. But for me also is to share with him about his sense of well-being too. And I think that was very important, which I recognize that Pat understood but even on his path of diabetes, and you and I had started this conversation earlier about Western medicine, and Pat took himself on, off of some medications because he felt that it wasn't helping him. And this also became our journey or the beginning of us exploring, how do you tap into our history and our culture of traditional Chinese medicine to begin healing himself? Because you and I have had conversations about spiritual autonomy and how I truly believe that self-healing, our body begins with self-healing our mind. And self-healing our mind isn't going to be listening to what everybody else is saying. It's really about going deep inside ourselves and really connecting to our inner truth. And how do we kind of go on that journey of finding our inner truth? It begins with understanding who we are, where we came from, um, and, uh, and, and issues in our life that need to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. It's the powerful, the powerful conversations that change everything. Yes. Very much so. It is. It is those those moments where I think about um, the fact that these these tragedies are great catalysts. That I started a human off of born of two shootings that affected me quite deeply on a, you know deeply on a human level. I didn't know anyone there that was was killed or injured, but but emotionally and and humanly it affected me. Um, it is often the blessing amidst the yes. 
the tragedies, you know, that, so why didn't you talk with him for so long? Was it that same thing of feeling that he was just not holding up his side of the bargain for the family? It was, yeah. And to be all honest, it was my, um, my very, uh, very narrow perspective, not being able to step outside of myself. I've always thought that I was a very compassionate and empathetic person, but I think we're also blind to that. Those are also our blind spots, right? We think that until we realize that we're not. And then that's an opportunity for change. And like you said, this is that silver lining. And I think for so many years, you know, we often say that things that cause us a lot of pain are the things that we need to work on because they are a reflection of um, yeah. of, of, of the things that we need to work on. Yeah, and, and anger that- is pain. So the things that cause you great anger are, is generally, it's because it's triggering something that you haven't been willing to touch. That's right. And here's yeah. the self-love portion of it is, is that we are all humans and on our journey of healing. And when we are ready to look at that, and then we have the courage to kind of embrace that and look at it in the face and say, well, yeah. what is it about it? But there's all a timing, you know, things all happen for a reason. And it took this, what happened in Atlanta and, um, and what happened, Black Lives Move, that movement, it took all of that for me to come full circle, to have a deep, a deep, deep, deep empathy and compassion for not only for Patrick, but for myself, because that's the other part of it is self-acceptance. You know, even if we are hard on ourselves, if we don't accept, you know, um, ourselves and love ourselves, and we are are not ready to move towards healing, because healing begins with that self-love towards self, towards sure, that unconditional love towards self. And I don't think yeah. until this happened was I really had, had I built the foundation to truly love myself enough to face it to say whatever I'm looking at, I still love myself, but I'm going to heal myself and I'm going to make changes. Do you think um, that that conversation will shift your desire for perfection? What a great question. I think what it allows me to see is that that perfection doesn't exist. Perfection is, you know, I think that is also a very damaging word because perfection is somebody who tells you that that's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. I like to think of it as trying to achieve a sense of peace um, and an inner calm. I think that is my perfection now. Whereas, you know, when I was growing up, it was to be this, to be this certain way, to look a certain way, to achieve a certain amount, to make a certain amount of money. But for me now, I realize that as I've gone on that path, it didn't bring me peace. And what I am now in the second half of my life is how do I surround myself with people that um, bring me peace in my life? And how do I do things in my life? How do I find, you know, it's about, it's about greater purpose. And it sounds very trite, um, but it's true. Um, when we step into that place of, of peace um, and doing everything to kind of uh, to arrive at that, you feel a sense of, of calm. Um, there's no rush to get anywhere. And, and I think that's where I feel the greatest empathy and compassion um, is when I am in that space. And that's what I feel right now. There's no absolute nots. There's no shoulds. Um, I live every day kind of, and I try to live every day through the lens of like a child. And we had talked about this, like what is the wonder in this and not being attached to certain outcomes or certain ideas, but really being open to this is whatever it's going to be is what it's meant to be, right? Wherever we are, we're supposed to be there to accept that, to love that and to step back to to fully embrace what that experience is because there are so many levels of that. And yeah. um, I'm excited to just be able to be in a place where I'm still healthy 
of mind and body and of spirit where I can continue to do that. Because in that, the incredible people that have come into my world, Susan, is just mind-blowing. Um, and when we also tap into that, I've also realized that my intuition is so strong um, to, the, to the point that I continue to manifest something. As I was sitting here, you and I were talking about when we were going to connect this afternoon, I was thinking about Joel, right, from our, our meeting. Yeah. And guess what happened? He texted, he sent me an email right then. And I texted him right back and I said, you know, Joel, I was just thinking about you. Love it. I love Joel. He's the best. Yeah. yeah. That's when we know that we are on the right path. We're on the right path. When things start to fall into place and we're not working yeah. so hard. Yeah, absolutely. You talked about a little bit earlier before you started getting into the, uh, the MMM, as you called it. Yeah. And I think that's a huge in conjunction with the where you are, there you are bit is that it's frustrating when we're in relationships with people. And I I mean, friends, lovers, family, where it seems so obvious. Something seems so obvious to ourselves and they're not in that space yet. And our expectation for them to rise to the occasion when they're not ready is a, that's a lot to expect of another person. And one of our, I think, human journeys is to be okay with people being where they are. And unfortunately, sometimes that means being okay with the fact, and okay, you know, I'm putting quotes around okay, but understanding why some people are going to do crazy ass shit in the world, you know, that hurts us, that hurts our humanity, it hurts our, our being for our fellow humans, but at the same time, realizing that that person is in this space and they're just not able to get to the next place. Is that making sense? I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of babbling, but I think about that a lot and I've brought it up before in other shows because I talk to people that have done all sorts of interesting things. And, you know, I just, I don't judge it because (laughs) it could be me. Just That's because right. I've I have had these experiences, so I'm doing this over here and they're doing that over there. It's so easy to look at another person and judge them. The hard part is to look at ourselves and understand we could be them, right? And and you just said it. When we start seeing these things in our lives and how I look at it, um, I think it's also how you look at it, is whenever there is like a, a, a repeated kind of a, um, an MO of why people are behaving that, that's actually for our growth, right? So is it what is it that makes me uncomfortable that they're not understanding mm-hmm. me? Is it because I'm not being heard in some way? Is it because I don't have a voice in some way? It's really a call yeah. to action. And that happens a lot. We start looking at, okay, so if this is something that keeps on coming up, what do I need to do? That's the yang energy, right? The yin energy is sitting back contemplating and thinking about our next steps and how do we evolve. The yang energy is that this gives me discomfort. It gives me dis-ease. Action is going to soothe the dis-ease. So what is that action going to be? And I think this is a time of what we are seeing with the coronavirus and what's been happening, right? We keep on going, you know, back and, you know, we keep on contracting and then we expand a little bit. We contract and we expand a little bit. Well, in that expansion, what are we going to do to move forward, to move ourselves forward so that we don't continually have these same experiences? Because once we do that, truth be told, 
we won't, we won't, we'll experience that one thing less and less because we've moved yeah. forward. So it's, it's such a weird thought. Like I look at somebody who went out, had big feelings, took a gun and killed a bunch of people. That's a huge decision. Sometimes it's an out of body decision for people. Cause I've watched plenty of interviews where folks go into this sort of state of being where they're not even in their bodies anymore. And I think, okay, when in my own life, my God, I've wished a few people dead for sure. I've had fantasies of killing people who hasn't, who hasn't there. I would, I would, it would be very hard to find somebody that has never had a thought like that, wishing someone dead. The difference is I don't act on that feeling. I can dissipate it or, or whatever that person can't. It's such a weird thing. To, I, I think about this stuff all the time. It's just, we have a mental illness problem in the human race, firstly. And it's not just chemicals misfiring in the brain. It's a, it, it's like a soul, a mental pain. illness in the soul. Yeah, it's yes. pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and even when you say that so many things go through my head about somebody who goes to do that. And, and I'm not spiritual bypassing when I said for somebody to go out and to kill people, they are, they must be in so much pain, so much pain that where they physically disconnect the act of what's going on and, and the humanity of it or the inhumaneness of it. That is so much pain. And it's so many soul lifetimes of pain that that has happened. And why does that happen? We, if you go back to the energy of that's happening, is yep. that somewhere along the line, that person was a baby that their mother loved. And, and I believe that all human beings are loving. And when we go through all of these cha challenges in our life where society hasn't allowed us, now I'm not putting it all on society, but going back to systemic, there is something that systemically is wrong. Sure. This is why it's happening. We're seeing more yep. suicides, more mass killings. This is not a chance thing that's happening. So when you look at that, we have to completely going back to what we're looking at, even with the, with racism, the mental illness part, racism is part of the mental illness. This mental illness is the overarching. It's a universal theme. This becomes yeah. a manifestation. Racism is a symptom of our mental illness, right? It's mental the illness. Mental it's economic illness. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's a uh, uh, narcissism illness. That's right. So if you go back to traditional Chinese medicine, and not just traditional Chinese medicine, but a, a lot of the old indigenous uh, um, um, tribes, they, we talk about energy, right? When we have too much energy, and, and energy is not good or bad, it's just too much. When there's too much of it, and you're not able to release that energy, what happens? It circles around in your body to cause disease, right? So when we recognize that it is all about energy, how do we start looking at healing in a different way, right? right? And it's not just about curing, which is Western medicine. How do we heal our mind, body, and our spirit, our heart, and our soul? That is where we need to begin. That is a new paradigm of how do we heal ourselves. And only then, when we flip that paradigm, can true change happen. And, you know, our species can continue to survive. Otherwise, you know, our species will not survive. But this well, is what is the pulse. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Pulse shooting, the guy who killed all those people in the Pulse nightclub, he had he had overwhelming homosexual feelings. And that rage 
So you could argue in a sort of a Freudian sense that, that people are lashing out at some aspect of themselves, right? Yes. That they're, they're killing the part of themselves that they hate. The thing that makes me crazy, though, too, is that when a white male commits such violence, it's he's had a bad day. It's a one-off thing. He's, you know, whatever. But immediately, if it's a person of color, like the, the guy from yesterday apparently is a Muslim, which that's a religion that he's, you know, he's... A, He's, he's in the faith of Islam, so he could be a white guy. I haven't seen his face, so I don't know if he's a white guy who practices, you know, it's a practicing Muslim or if he's a you know, person of color. But who cares, you know, but it's like that becomes the thing. Oh, well, he's other. That's why he did it. This is a structural racism, right? Yes, this there's such a path for total- white guys to, to be crazy. <laughs> right. It discounts the deeper problem. And, and then yeah. you can brush it aside because then you put it in a box and then you move on, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. The, the, the guy in Atlanta. Oh, it was a sexual thing. Okay, so put it in a box and let's move on. Yeah, right. Not, not he particularly targeted Asians. That's right. Yeah, it's so nutty. And then, of course, within, I mean, the one big thing that I love that you're talking about is that the idea that when we start to look at ourselves and, and there, is, there is racism with I think with with the white quote unquote whatever that even means anymore is that it's a classism that is their racism, and then for in the people of color like within the black community I've talked I've spoken a lot with uh, with black people who say within our own community it's what color black are you what shade if you're lighter you know versus darker so there's colorism, and then for you talking about in the Asian community. <laughs> It's intellect or maybe the shape of your eyes, you know, and where that or the, falls or how light your skin is for the Chinese or people, how, yeah. right? You right. want to be pale, right? Because that, that connotes something different than a laborer who has dark skin. So I remember growing up, my mother was right. always like, put a towel over your face when you're out in the sun, like white, 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 white. So all of these things that you're saying, you know, even within, yeah. uh, it's causing, you know, um, us to eat our own, even within the Chinese community, we're going in, like you said, even in the black community, it's the same thing. Yeah. Right. The levels we of got all the isms. It's so frustrating. And it's fascinating to me that white people can't get tan enough. And yet they hold some sort of standard up against any person of color. If they get too dark, it's fucking isn't bizarre. Isn't it, uh, yeah. And as yeah. I said the other night, it wouldn't even matter because if we were all the same color, there would be some other fucking bullshit to get to, right. to decide to hate somebody for. Right. Oh, it's just, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So going back to how do we begin? And I think one of the ways that is a very healthy approach is to continue to look back on how we are similar, right? What yeah. binds us together? It's all our yeah. desire to be seen, to be heard, to, to be seen, to be heard right? We all want food on our table. We all want a roof over our heads. We all want to feel safe. I think that is where the conversation needs to begin. But I think we need to start with understanding where we all came from to create our own identity. It's not the American identity of being Chinese. It's not that. It is our own identity because America is all of those things. It is not one. Yeah, that's that's what's so beautiful. But I mean, this, let's be honest, you know, 
if you're Irish, you can't work here. That was that happened after World War II and probably after World War One. Uh, if you're, you know, Asian, let's put you to work in labor camps. If you are Japanese, let's put you in an internment camp. If you are black, let's throw you in jail. I mean, there's like this stuff's been going on in this country for a very long since its inception. If you are yes. an indigenous, let's just fucking kill you. Like, you're, you don't even get to be here, period. We're just going to stomp all over you. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So until, until, and I know people get so upset about, you know, oh, there's too much obsessing over the past. That wasn't that long ago, y'all. It just wasn't that long ago. So it's really not the past. It's, the, it's not too far back. So let's uh, let's give that some due is the fact that it pretty much just happened in the history of the world. All these things have been in economics and uh, America has a caste system as much as they'd like to think we don't. You know, this whole thing just just it perpetuates all this madness. And even admitting that, too, is a beginning. Yeah, you're the best. I love talking with you. I feel that you are so wise in so many ways and you have such um deep insight about so many different things um we could like talk about i know well we shall this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship it sure (laughs) is it sure is and you are such a joy and a delight and so you are too how can people find you roberta where do they go um giftedtaste.com you can always find me and um you can also just google me a robert i mean um just send me an email roberta kung at gmail.com Awesome. And I'll put links on Hey Human Podcast for everybody to to find easily. Thank you so much. It's so delightful talking to you. So much great energy. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy your gorgeous garden. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.